speaking with Jamie Woodhouse and Jamie runs a website and a blog called sentientism.info and promotes this idea of sentientism which is essentially uh, to base your beliefs in evidence reason and moral consideration for all sentient beings and so this is kind of a broad and pluralistic uh, mindset that includes uh, you know movements like veganism uh, anti-speciesism uh, suffering-focused ethics, that type of thing. And so uh, we talked broadly about sentientism today, as well as sort of diving into some nitty-gritty thought experiments. Uh, and so I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you. Good. All right, Jamie Woodhouse, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, my pleasure. So um, we came across each other on Twitter, um, sort of through various animal ethics, uh, you know, uh, connections, and you run a site called Sentientism. And so I want to talk about sentientism and sort of these adjacent fields. Uh, but the traditional uh, start of this podcast is always just a question about uh, how coffee fits into your life if you drink it, uh, how much you drink it, uh, just, you know, that will help me fill out my mental model of who you are. Yeah, I'm, it's an important part of my life. It's I'm not quite on an intravenous drip, but it's it's heading that way. So yeah, it's a it's sort of solid part of the routine. Uh, double shot espressos with soy milk normally. Okay, um, cool. And on a you know on a on a good day, I'll, I'll hold to like two or three of those. On a bad day, it might stretch up to four. So. <laughs> and, and do you but have? No, that it's an important home? part of my life. Do you do you make those drinks at home, or do you have them out? Yeah, pretty much at home. Pretty much at home. So yeah, lucky to have a nice little espresso machine here. So that keeps me keeps me fed. And... Beautiful. And you you uh, steam up the soy milk or just toss it in? I've got a. Um, uh, it, it's not a steaming machine, but it sort of froths it. So it's a it, it heats it up and spins it around a little little device. So uh, so when I can be bothered, I use that. Yeah, yeah. So it's not cool. a sort of spe- specialized barista kit, but you know it does the job. It does the job. So. I'm also glad to hear that you're uh, still on the soy milk kick. I, uh, you know, in Los Angeles here, it's always kind of like this, uh, you know, battle of who has the newest milk. And uh, I, I've been a long time fan of soy milk, but you know, a lot of people just are sort of like, you know, they'll be like, don't you know about all the things soy will do to you? I don't yeah, know. I feel yeah, great. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. The, the original and best. I think we'll keep keep coming back to it. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, we'll probably we'll probably both be cancelled by the oat milk crowd now. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, cool. So uh, I, I'm curious before we dive into sentientism, uh, if th- this isn't your career, right? This is just like your blog. Do you do, what do you do separately and sort of what's your background? Yeah, so by, by career, I'm a consultant. So um, I worked for a, a very big firm of uh, management consultants for almost a quarter of a century. I was a partner there for a long while. Um, and I still do some consulting and advisory work and coaching work. Um, uh, freelance now so I you know I guess that's still still sort of my trade 
Um, but I also run a variety of different uh, projects that are more aligned with, I guess, the things I think are most important. So um, some of those are involvement in charities and NGOs and uh, various aspects of campaigning or volunteering work. Um, but uh, this sentientism project is probably, yeah, probably my favorite, probably the one that's has the deepest implications for all of the other things I do. Awesome. Cool. So um, my understanding of sentientism is basically that uh, it's just the foundation of, you know, sort of acknowledging that we need to figure out what is true, uh, you know, via like science and rational thought and uh, uh, also what to care about and sort of like value theory. Um, is that a fair assessment or, uh, I mean, it seems like it's a big, you know, you described it as a sort of pluralistic, uh, you know, open-ended thing, but it seems yeah. to be all-encompassing of these adjacent fields. Is that how you I think, think of it? I think that's a fair summary. It's, I mean, in, in a sentence, it's, it's evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. So you could break that down into two parts because it's trying to answer what I think are two of the most fundamental questions in philosophy. One is, you know, what's real and what should we choose to believe in? Um, and sentientism, you know, very much like secular humanism or skepticism or you know any other sort of naturalistic worldview says well we should use evidence and reason to work that out um the other side of it and the second philosophical question it's trying to answer is what should we care about morally what matters um and there the answer you know the clue is in the name it's any sentient being and uh, we define sentience as the capacity to have experiences um so you, you might call you know, good experiences flourishing, you might call bad experiences suffering. So anything that's capable of experiencing suffering or, or, or flourishing, we should count that morally, at least grant some moral consideration and compassion. Um, yeah, so it's, it's answering those two questions, but it's doing it in a very basic, broad way. Um, so it doesn't pretend to answer all of the other sort of more complicated philosophical questions. It doesn't tell you how to trade off different interests or priorities um yeah, but it just tries to set a very simple yeah pluralistic baseline if you like that hopefully lots of people could come to agree on as a starting point for how we address problems in the world and then we can fight over all the details after that but as long as we're all using evidence and reason to work out what to believe and as long as there's no um you know sentient being that we exclude or say you know we don't care that's a pretty solid starting point from my perspective. So that's that's partly what I'm trying to yeah raise awareness of it, popularize it, develop it a little bit. Cool. So in terms of like researching sentience and where to draw the line, because you know I think there's uh, you know people want to draw the line a lot closer to humans than I think yeah. we do. Um, what's your sort of like process of uh, you know epistemics here and just like figuring out uh, where you want to draw your line? And so, so this is one of the other weird things about sentientism is that it doesn't specify which types of beings or even which species, groups of species are sentient or not. It just says, follow the science, that's it. Um, so different sentientists will disagree about where that line is drawn. But um, over time, as the science develops and as our understanding of sentience develops, I think you know, you'd expect them to converge and there to be some reasonable consensus about where that line is. Um, that line is also always, I think, going to be like lots of regulations, laws or ethical things. We might practically have to draw a line, but it's more likely it's a bit fuzzy. Um, so, so as with many useful concepts like life and health and 
well-being, you might find it difficult to put a really precise technical boundary around it. You might find that there's some fuzzy edges and you might need to apply some prudence or you might need to you know, give certain things the benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> but um, I think it's fair to say, and I'm not you know, a neuroscientist or a biological scientist, but from my understanding of where science is today, um, there's a pretty strong consensus that um, one, I guess humans are sentient. <laughs> Hopefully many of us can agree with that. Although there are some philosophers who you know, might, might disagree. Some solipsists will say that they're the only thing that's conscious. Um, uh, so humans, very solid, but there's also a strong consensus around uh, mammals, birds, reptiles, fish, um, and quite a few of the invertebrates as well. But I think invertebrates in general is one space where um, you know, there is uncertainty, there's more research required and, you know, lower degrees of confidence, but there's some interesting research going on in those spaces at the moment. Um, in, in practical terms, most sentientists, um, just out of prudence and to be, um, you know, give things the benefit of the doubt, tend to include all animals um, in that category. But technically around the edges, if you look at something like a sea cucumber, um, you know, it is classed as an animal, but it has no nervous system at all. So, you know, I'm pretty confident, you know, it's not capable of suffering. Um, so in a way, one of the practical implications of, for most sentientists is they end up um, taking a, you know, an ethical stance that is pretty consistent with um, many animal, animal ethics advocates and, and many of them practically choose to be vegan because, you know, the uh, definition of sentient being overlaps enormously with animal, which is the word that's normally used in, uh, mm -hmm. in veganism and most the motivation for most ethical vegans is about reducing and avoiding suffering which is a characteristic only of sentient beings so there's a lot of consistency there so that's a long answer but hopefully mm -hmm. it gives you a sense of i think where the consensus is and pretty much where i am too so your mentioning of a, a sea cucumber makes me think of somebody that I've heard identify as a, a bivalve vegan, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they're willing to eat crustaceans or whatever. Uh, but that's that's never been something that made sense to me. But I'm, I'm curious. So you identify, like, a, the vegan label is something that you run with? Yeah. Personally? Yeah, I do. I do. And, uh, and um, partly that's a prudence thing. Partly, you know, I don't have a particular interest in eating mussels or you know anyway um, so i don't feel that there's a drive to do that but i also think the science is uncertain so there are people who you know are very are confident enough around you know mussels for example or oysters that they're not sentient that they're comfortable um farming them and eating them um i don't have that level of confidence because it feels to me as though the research is is, is less conclusive and um uh, you know consciousness and sentience are by definition very complex rich and difficult to understand areas and the science is quite immature so uh, you know i tend to have quite a grant quite a lot of benefit of the doubt for uh, mm -hmm. beings around it maybe that around around the edges but yeah that's a motivation for bivalve vegans is that they say look it's about reducing suffering uh, they've come to the conclusion often with decent scientific backup that mussels and oysters and so on are not physically capable of experiencing suffering or experiencing anything at all so ethically they're comfortable you know consuming them Mm -hmm. okay. um, but yeah i identify as vegan as well so yeah i even give yeah. muscles the benefit of the doubt yeah. uh, me as well I've, I've been a vegan for 15 years but uh it being in los angeles it's kind of funny seeing um yeah like it's pretty widespread now which is awesome but uh 
it's like interesting to see it being rebranded as plant-based and uh, there's just this observation I have of Los Angeles vegans that they seem to be kind of like the loudest and maybe the least calibrated. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> I'm curious how uh, like London vegans, like what the scene is like over there. Yeah, I mean, it's it, one is it, it's a it's a really easy place to be vegan, like, you know, many, many big international cities. Um, and, you know, it's important to remind myself of that. It's um, you know it, it's not not as easy in many other places so it is really easy um uh, it feels like veganism here is where vegetarianism was maybe 10 years ago so um it, you know options in restaurants when you're eating out the supermarket aisles with different alternatives um the you know big corporations being very comfortable branding things as vegan and coming out with vegan products and um you know it feels the acceptability of veganism now has really shifted forward um in a way that um as i say it's parallel with maybe veganism a, a decade ago so so it's easy and it's and it's moving and it's developing but we've got a really really diverse um range of people in the movement here as i you know i think you you do in la too um uh, with different motivations so people will come to the movement with motivations around health or environment or ethics um people will have different views on um you know the personal changes we're making versus the importance of driving institutional and systemic change there are many views about whether veganism should focus on animal ethics itself or whether it should become linked to many other different types of uh, movements of social change um, and there are massively diverse views about whether you know we try and use capitalism to shift to a, the end of animal farming through economic pressure or whether um, you know, making that level of change requires a completely different economic system. So there's a breathtaking diversity of, um, you know, different styles and opinions within the movement. Um, and as ever with these sorts of movements, it sometimes feels like they spend more time fighting each other than they do <laughs> recognizing how much they have in common and working on a common cause. But I guess that's part of the sort of healthy friction of uh, any movement that's really trying to make a big social change happen. Now, now, when you say health, um, that's something I sort of want to double click on because both of us seem like we're, you know, healthy individuals. Um, but there's this big contention against veganism and like some of the very smartest people I know have uh, criticized me for this. And like, it's usually something about like, you know, there's the obvious, like, how do you get your protein thing, which is just tired and boring yeah. at this point. Um, but like the more sophisticated sort of qualm that somebody might have is like, you know, about phospholipids or about like, amino acid profiles and protein uh do you have or like a dha or something like that do you have any like nutritional concerns that you've like taken special care with being a vegan or uh do you have any stance on this i don't i mean I, and, and and to be honest the dietary side of it is is um you know i'm not a specialist in it and i, I don't it's not a driver of my motivation at all it's a side effect um, and mm -hmm. the only way it could become an implication is if it you know was had a chance of really seriously impacting my health and you know it doesn't i've i've been uh, very comfortable on it um so i've i've not needed to take any special steps um you know it's just been common sense stuff i'm pretty comfortable with the sorts of things i eat um i do take a um the vegan society in the uk does has their own supplement that just sort of covers the bases of things like selenium and iodine and you know the the other things that there's a risk you might miss if you have a really poorly planned vegan diet um so yeah it's super easy really i just sort of take one of those things a day 
um, mm -hmm. you know, eat a rich variety of things and that's it, I've had no issues at all. And I think that the fundamental for me is that, you know, any nutrient you need, you can get from, you know, a sensible plant-based diet. Um, and ultimately we can get those nutrients from the same places as farmed animals do, um, at which is essentially plants. And if you need them, you know, a supplement. So it's pretty straightforward for me. Um, but it's, I think the health space is interesting because, um, it, it is a strong motivator for some people. Um, and as long as that is based on decent science and robust evidence, um, then it's, it's a, it's a factor we can think about, about how to bring people into the movement and to get them to make changes that will cause much less, you know, um, suffering and death. So it's an important thing to bear in mind, but it's, it's really important. And I guess this links to the sentientism idea that, um, it, to my mind, it always backfires if you overplay the story. So if, if you, your uh, focus, your appropriate focus on trying to promote veganism leads you to make claims that are poorly substantiated or driven by warped research or turn out not to be supported by facts, that backfires enormously. So when we do make claims about the impacts of, you know, I think and the consensus seems to be there at worst neutral and largely positive, but as we do make claims about impacts on um, uh, of a vegan diet on health, we've got to make sure that they're well-founded. Um, and we've got to make sure that we also don't skip over issues where there are real issues. We've got to be really frank and clear and, and upfront about it. Um, so another uh, question I have about how, how you personally eat as a vegan, um, you know, the, a lot of people criticize veganism for sort of like creating these meat replacers and stuff. And I'm wondering uh, <laughs> if those play into your life, like Beyond Meat, and uh, if you have any feeling about that sort of like, you know, like textured vegetable protein base of fake meat versus this upcoming cultured meat movement. Yeah, um, I mean, personally, I'm I'm reasonably open-minded about it. I, it's it's interesting, but as I as I you know dro dropped animal products out of my diet, I have developed a, uh, to to a degree a sort of aversion to <laughs> uh, those things physically. It's not you know necessarily a visceral disgust. Um, but there is a, there's an association an unpleasant association, there. but at the same time, I do, you know, I, I still physically enjoy some of the textures and some of the, the, the flavors of some of those products. So I'm quite comfortable with, um, you know, a variety of different alternatives. Um, and, uh, that's certainly true of the plant-based alternatives that we have today. I'm still fairly purist about the, um, you know, the cultured or the cell-based approaches, because at the moment, those technologies still do require the use of some uh, elements of animal products in, in, mm -hmm. in many cases. And those, those companies are working to erase that completely so that they will be, you know, 100% pure vegan, even for the, even for the purists. Um, but I'm pretty open-minded about those, you know, when they get to that stage, I'll happily try them. And I guess the most important thing really is, is not my personal preference for them and, you know, what I eat, but it's, that I think they're going to have a fundamental role in uh, achieving the, the you know the broader objective, which is ultimately ending animal farming. Um, yeah. And while I'd love um, you know eight billion people to um, you know the lights suddenly go on and and recognise the harm they're causing both to non-human animals and to human animals through animal farming, and just decide you know we're not going to do this anymore. Um, I think in real terms that's going to take way too long and and actually what we're going to need to make that change happen um because we can talk as much as we like about the increasing acceptance of veganism and the availability of products and so on but if you look at the 
the charts and graphs of you know animal slaughter per year if that keeps going up we haven't achieved our objective and to to achieve that objective i think we need alternatives um and you need to get to a point where you know, if there are products that are widely available, that are as cheap or cheaper, that are as tasty or tastier, that are as healthy or healthier, that have a radically lower environmental footprint, and also don't cause sickening harm, um, you know, that's how we'll win at real scale. Um, so that's why, for me, those products are deeply important, because without those sorts of alternatives that basically beat animal products on pretty much every criteria, it's going to be really hard to drive, you know, proper full-scale change of the, the sort we want to see. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, only tried the Beyond Meat burger maybe like a few months ago. And uh, so what did I you tried, think? I mean, I was like, a friend made it for me. And I was like, you, uh, like, this isn't actually meat, right? Like, I, I haven't had meat in forever. So I was convinced that it could be meat. Um, yeah. But what's interesting about that is like it's so convincing and it seems that the push to get this cultured meat it in terms of the actual taste it doesn't seem that different but um i'm wondering if people just identify with it being a like an actual animal source to some extent like and so this yeah. makes me think of this uh question that i asked on twitter and didn't get any good responses on but it's basically like why like what is it about bacon that people enjoy beyond a certain ratio of protein to fat with some sort of Maillard caramelization reaction? Yeah, like, yeah. Is it just knowing that you are somehow, it, it seems like an anti-species sort of indulgence. Yeah, I, and, it, and it is in a way because uh, I guess the reason people have grown attached to those sorts of foods is, I guess one, just a technical chemical response of their minds to you know those tastes and flavors and those sensations and and even when people have switched their views ethically they might still get pleasure from those sensations and if we can do that without harm you know why not um but at the same time i think um a, a lot of the reason people have come to accept that is because you know through deliberate ignorance not thinking about the implications of your actions which you know i certainly did for most of my life I, I enjoyed eating animal products and almost deliberately avoided thinking about the topic um and because socially it just seems so normal and is accepted and hey, you're almost indoctrinated it into it from early childhood um that when you do decide to give that up um you know some people do see it almost as odd that then you want to replicate something that was associated with something you see is deeply wrong. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't have a strong view about that personally. I think, I think, I think you're right. It, it almost if they get too realistic, I probably would fit personally feel an aversion to that. Um, but that doesn't worry me too much. What I'm really worried about is, you know, did, does it reduce harm? Does it right. reduce harm? And I think, I think they're going to play a you know, significant role in that. But uh, do you think that you'll have the Peter Singer burger when it comes out? Cause you know, Peter Singer has said that he'd happily, uh, donate the sort of like uh, starting point <laughs> flesh for a star set. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, you probably have the experience as well, but when, whenever you talk about animal ethics on Twitter, it's amazing the sorts of things you end up talking about. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I've, I've spoken to people recently who, who have actually bitten the bullet and said, you know, farming human toddlers would be ethical. So, you know, it's amazing how, how many conversations around uh, cannibalism and, wild animal suffering and various other topics you get into but you know i wouldn't i i, I still i think i'd still feel squeamish about eating 
a Peter Singer burger, even if it didn't cause him any substantial suffering. Technically, ethically, maybe there's no downside, but I'd still feel odd. I still yeah. feel odd. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, um, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about anti-speciesism. Uh, you know, Magnus Vending, uh, he argues that yeah. we should advocate for anti-speciesism over uh, uh, veganism. And, uh, you know, he's promoting suffering-based ethics. And a lot of this is based in the, you know, cognitive bias of scope neglect. And um, there's sort of like this nitty-gritty thought experiment that I've seen going around. I think it originated on Less Wrong, um, but it's basically you know, this sort of utilitarian aggregation problem of like, uh, you know, what's worse, one person being tortured or quintillion people having a speck of yeah. dust in their eye. Uh, do you have any sort of perspective on this? Because it, it obviously sounds ridiculous to somebody who's not just going through the spot uh, thought experiment, but uh, yeah, I'm curious about your take on that. Well, there's, so there's, there's two reasons why sentientism is a deliberately really broad pluralistic platform. Uh, one is, because it enables a lot of people to uh, you know, have a common basis of agreement and work together on something. The other one is because it enables me to cop out of really difficult questions like that. Because <laughs> <laughs> sentientism itself is neutral on, you know, it's neutral on consequentialism versus deontology versus virtue ethics. You could, you could arguably be any of those things and still be a sentientist as long as you draw your morals up in the right way. And it's neutral on, you know, population ethics. It's neutral on whether you aggregate harms in those different forms of utilitarianism as well um so um so sentientism itself cops out of a lot of that stuff which is great for me because it's you know difficult and i'm not a professional philosopher um but my my personal view uh, partly uh, tends to again duck out of those issues because while there are some fascinating um philosophical questions i think there are some more obvious immediate ones uh, that we already know the answers to that we can work on addressing right now um so you know in a way i prefer to prioritize there so unless those more esoteric philosophical um questions have a campaigning impact in today's world um you know i, I find them a little less 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 tractable but but generally i also and again this is a personal view so many different sentientists will disagree when it comes to thinking about population ethics and the future and the aggregation problem, I tend to be uh, skeptical about raw aggregations because there isn't any entity that's feeling the aggregated um, suffering or flourishing. So I, I do tend to sort of be hesitant about just mathematical aggregations of experience. I tend to come back to considering the individuals. Um, and when we're thinking about population ethics and, and future potential sentience, Again, this is probably naive, and I just need to read a lot more. But um, but I tend to have a bias towards um, sentient beings that exist today, um, uh, and that leads me to a stance of saying, um, if there's a future entity, a future being that may never come into existence, and then does never come into existence, no harm has been done um and it can't be harmed because it doesn't exist and it will never exist uh, whereas if uh, you take some action which may create a future sentient being and you do create a future sentient being then that harm even though it's in the future um is morally salient now we should be cognizant of that so that might lead you to say um 
you know, it, it can be ethically positive to create a new sentient life, but there's no obligation to do that because if you don't, there is no entity that you've harmed or deprived of life. Um, whereas if you, does that make sense? So you could probably sense my sort of amateur philosophy coming out, but that's where my, my, my sort of thinking is roughly on those, those sorts of topics. Skeptical about raw aggregation, just, you know, need to be a little careful on that. And then, you know, a little bit presentist bias when thinking about, you know, sentient beings that exist and exist today or definitely will exist in a future scenario. It's interesting that you mentioned sort of, uh, you know, the uh, whether or not to weigh future uh, beings. It makes me think of Tyler Cowen talking to Peter Singer about sort of like <laughs> geographical uh, versus temporal considerations. But uh, to make a less ridiculous sort of version of the thought. I think that's, and I think that's, I think that's one difference, right? Because, because with a geographical distance, that sentient being still exists. Mm -hmm. With a temporal distance, that sentient being may never exist at all. So, so that's, that's one difference. I think if the, if the being does come into existence, then you could argue it's just the same as a geographical distance. But if it's never going to exist at all, then that's, that's very different from a geographic existence. Um, I, I guess one of the other things about it, you, you can then think about from a practical point of view, if you're in a position where you're unable to influence the experience of a being, even though you might grant it moral consideration, you might practically not prioritize it because you can't have an effect. Um, so that, again, that might have a differential impact by some geographical versus temporal distance as well. But I suppose. Sorry, you were saying, yeah. No, it's cool. Uh, Tyler Cowen, this situation also, I think, uses this as a, a basis for why economic growth is a, a moral imperative. So yeah. it's kind of interesting <laughs> yeah. that uh, he's, he's a lot smarter than I am. So who am I, who am I to talk? Uh, but, uh, he to he talk is. He's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting thinking. And, and I mean, the, the other thought I have when thinking about the future is I think, again, maybe this is just a self-serving intuition um, and I've built some logic around it. But I think the best chance of us having... Uh, you know, a wonderful long-term future for all sentient beings um, is, is in part to uh, look after the sentient beings that exist at the moment. And particularly, you know, I'm not expecting non-human species to make an enormous contribution given their capabilities, but certainly with the 8 billion humans we have today, if we could free many more of those 8 billion humans from, you know, battling with the bottom half of Maslow's hierarchy and to free that intellect and that emotion and that power and that compassion, um, I think that's our best bet of securing a, an enormous long-term future, not necessarily just sort of waiting for, for a hinge moment. I think, every, you know, almost every, any moment is a potential hinge moment. And, and that does, in a way, bring you back to some more mainstream concerns about global health and global poverty and, you know, and, and prioritizing the sentient experience of you know, things that exist today, because I think we're largely where the potential lies for securing a good long-term future too. So with the, the scope neglect sort of thought experiment that I gave you, um, it, a lot more reasonable version of this is like to consider invertebrate suffering or like wild animal suffering. You know, somebody I think said like, if you put it conservatively and say one in 10 wild animals suffers to the extent that a factory farmed animal does, uh, there's still like an order of like, you know, hundred to a thousand times more or something like that. Um, but in your mind is just like the, you know, sort of, awfulness of like you know factory farming is obviously horrible and that seems like yeah. an easier thing to deal with than wild animal suffering um other than like you know uh sort of like population reduction things with which also seem crazy to most vegans um yeah 
Yeah. Like, what do you think about uh, invertebrate suffering and that sort of whole scene? So I, so, so I, um, and again, I'd, I think I'd criticize some people in the wider animal advocacy movement here as well, because I do think, um, you know, while sentientism is, you know, broad and generic and doesn't specify particular policies, the stance of, um, you know, what matters morally is, is it a sentient being? Not is it a wild animal or is it a farmed animal or is it a human? It's is it sentient? Um, so so um, and and it also is committed to you know using evidence and reason and following the science. So as you say, if if where that leads you to is a conclusion that you know there is massive catastrophic suffering in the wild, whether invertebrate or mammal or whatever types, that is a serious ethical negative um, mm-hmm. and, a, and a and a deep and, and difficult problem. Um, so, so I do see wild animal suffering as a uh, as a as a deeply high priority problem. Um, uh, so, on the scope neglect, um, on the scope criteria, um, you know, I think it absolutely qualifies as high priority. Um, now, uh, of course, the, the difficulty is, you know, how and and many people in the animal advocacy movement would would reject that argument, um, either because they completely want to focus on animal farming because it's a deliberate harm caused by humans and it is and i agree um uh, or because they have some sort of reverence for nature that implies you know an antelope being eaten by a lion you know that's fine ethically because it's natural um and i i fundamentally disagree i'm not saying um the answer is easy uh, I'm not suggesting, you know, it's viable that we go out and feed beyond burgers to all the lions or, um, you know, forcibly impose contraception on all predators. But that doesn't mean that the suffering isn't morally salient. I think it absolutely is. Um, so, um, you know, one easy way to is, is to then to retreat to animal farming and say there's a clear moral wrong that we are actually making happen and you can understand in practical terms how to address that. So let's focus there first. Um, but I think there's a strong argument to say we all, we should also balance that by, you know, really deepening our research and understanding of uh, wild animal suffering and work out the really complex issues about how and whether and and when we should intervene in some way. Um, many people would you know, look at that suggestion as patently ridiculous um, and bizarre, but I think it's an obvious implication of giving moral consideration to all sentient life. Uh, we don't have the answers. The field is very immature. It's massively complex problems. There's, you know, so much risk of human hubris of intervening in complex multidimensional ecosystems that we don't understand and actually making the problem worse. So those are all valid concerns, but none of them, none of them obviate the moral, you know, wrong of the outcome of of, of all suffering. So. Well, I'm going to keep on sort of poking you with uh, specifics that uh, I. I've feel like you might try to duck out of with sentientism uh, in its <laughs> uh, generality, but uh, there's another sort of thought experiment of like, you know, if you're a high powered lawyer, is it better to, you know, go spend an hour in a soup kitchen or to, you know, pay somebody to spend 10 hours in a soup yeah. kitchen or whatever. Um, and so I think that this can sort of like get a little bit weird sometimes because like, you know, I know that like Jeffrey Miller, the um, evolutionary uh, psychologist guy, he is not a vegan at all. He eats meat, but he donates a huge chunk of money to animal ethics uh, organizations or uh, it, that type of thing. And then, you know, Brian Tomasic, 
is more bothered by running in the forest and not stepping on bugs than he is by consuming whey. Um, and these things seem kind of foreign to me and confusing. And I'm yeah. wondering if you have the same sort of intuition or uh, what your thoughts are on those types of things. I do have, I do have the same intuition because um, while technically, you know, if you get out a spreadsheet and put in a bunch of different options, you, you might be able to rationalize some of those approaches. Um, you can always improve it by not doing the thing you're offsetting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's no need to do the thing you're offsetting in the first place. So yeah, I do, I find that sort of logic a little, a little, little strange. I mean, I don't doubt that technically, you know, that they might be doing more, um, to alleviate suffering than, um, some other approaches, but yeah, intuitively it strikes me as odd. And I suppose those were two sort of unrelated examples, but um, with uh, the thing about, you know, not running in the forest and, uh, you know, instead eating whey uh, seems a little odd to me, but uh, I don't know, there's some stuff, like some stuff that uh, Brian Tomasic will talk about where it's like, you know, suffering per gram or per unit time. I'm yeah. wondering if this is sort of a disservice just because, you know, like he had that article about uh, like, should he be concerned about video game characters? And I thought it was a beautiful essay that was really thought out. Um, you're familiar with Brian, I'm assuming, yeah. right? Um, does that do us a disservice though? Because it kind of uh, allows there to be this absurdist optics on it where somebody can write an article like this guy thinks about, you know, video game characters as having moral weight. I think there is a danger. Right? And, and, and in a way that's, you know, many people object to sentientism for obvious reasons that it's pushing the moral circle further than they wanted to go, right? Because they want to continue eating sentient beings. So, you know, they'll stick with you know, a humanist stance or uh, or some more selective approach. So some people want to have a narrower circle than uh, sentience. Um, other people want to go too far the other way, and they either do that by saying we should grant uh, direct and intrinsic moral consideration to entities that aren't sentient at all, right? Rivers, mountains, plants. Um, and while I think those things are deeply important instrumentally they're only important to the extent that they have effect on sentient beings they don't they can't suffer themselves so they don't need direct intrinsic moral consideration um, but the second approach that some people take and um, is is that they actually tr almost redefine sentience or consciousness into something that i think is broader than is supported by the science um, mm. and and in general you know i see sentience as a class of rich advanced information processing that likely evolved because it was evolutionarily useful to have a rich model of the entity as a self operating in an environment and that that's probably where consciousness and sentience came from and it requires quite an advanced information processing capability like a brain or you know complex nervous system and also requires that drive or motivation for why it would come into existence in the first place so i do see sentience as a class of information processing but not all information processing is sentient and and some people seem to have gone down that path where they will look at plants or they will look at um uh yeah video game characters or um it, you know for a panpsychist they will take that you know potentially all the way to saying even elementary particles like electrons and photons are in some sense conscious um and i don't see that supported by the science both in terms of the information processing capability of those entities 
uh, I don't see it supported by uh, a rationale for how consciousness would have emerged in those types of entities because they're not subject to the sorts of pressures that would, you know, lead a, uh, you know, a biological mobile mammal to be sentient, for example. Um, so I think in both of those instances, yeah, I don't subscribe to those views. And I think you're right. It can either make the expansion of moral circle you know, look a little bit ridiculous because it's gone too far, um, or it can drift away from established science by redefining a term uh, in, you know, in the panpsychist sense to say, well, the foundation of all physics and the foundation of the universe is consciousness and even a photon is conscious, even though time doesn't pass for photons. And you know, if you've redefined a term like that is really deeply morally salient, like sentience or consciousness, you've redefined it to such an extent that you're genuinely claiming a photon is able to suffer pain, you've rendered the word entirely meaningless. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not sympathetic to those types of approaches. Um, and that's why it tends to lead me back to, you know, what I think the strong scientific consensus is, which is, you know, we're, we're, we're confident of, of our own sentience and our own consciousness because we're experiencing it right now. Um, I'm confident of your sentience because, um, you know, you're also human. So we have a pretty common evolutionary basis. So I assume you've got similar sort of information processing kit up here. You know, you're behaving in a way that, you know, feels to me like you're sentient of, you know, I'm a, maybe 99.9% confident I'm sentient and slightly less that you are, but I'm still confident you are. So, but, but from that, you can then look at behavior and you can look at neurology and you can look at, uh, you know, information processing architecture um, and evolutionary history. You can put me in an fRMRI scanner and you can start to understand what the physical basis of consciousness is. And then you can look for those analogs elsewhere. And as with any good naturalistic approach, it's provisional and it's probabilistic, right? We don't 100% know don't 100% know anything outside of formal systems but you can form a good level of confidence about as i said mammals reptiles birds fish you know some of the invertebrates at least uh, that have something that you know means it's highly likely they're you know able to experience things and that's um, I, that's the moral grounding so, so that leads me back to that you know almost where we started as where that moral circle needs to be drawn but again different sentientists will disagree right so there are you know there are panpsychist sentientists um and i would challenge them on the scientific basis for that view um interestingly when you do talk to them and say well does that mean it's wrong to harm a photon even though it's technically impossible to really do anything to a photon they will acknowledge that um the type of consciousness or sentience that a really really simple particle has does not warrant the same level of moral consideration so they will almost back away from you know the crazy moral implications of thinking electrons are conscious by by uh, grading sentience to a degree that um you know in practical terms we don't need to grant them meaningful moral consideration because their sentence is so breathtakingly simple you know it doesn't warrant the same level of consideration as a more complex being so this but makes yeah me i'm think not of, particularly sympathetic to those those, those views mm -hmm. uh, this makes me think of like matt dillahunty sort of uh, overtly saying that his reason for eating meat is like uh, you know, decidedly speciest, but he has like the cognitive complexity argument where he's like essentially like an animal is, you know, less cognitively complex than I am. And yeah. I think like, that seems like a place where you still have to draw a line. And most people, I think, uh, like, I think there's a certain type of person that would draw it at like fish, but uh, I mean, obviously like we would, you know, not say that, but um, I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting thing to spend your time grading sentience like that. 
Yeah, I agree. And, and, and um, I mean, I, I do think it's useful. I mean, again, this is another thing sentientists would disagree on is some, some do say, look, if anything, if something's sentient, it, it warrants the same moral consideration as any other. Um, um, so some sentientists work that way. Even, even though when you put them through a thought experiment of would you save a, you know, a spider or a chicken or a human from a burning building, you know, we know which way they'll go, right? So uh, even, even people who are, you know, egalit completely egalitarian sentientists normally under pressure will, you know, still favours something that's more, more co rich or complex. Um, I mean, personally, I, I do think there is a, it makes sense to grade sentience. Um, to a degree that might warrant different moral consideration for different species. Um, uh, uh, so, um, but, but the important thing is that we still set a baseline that any being that is sentient still warrants compassion, still warrants moral consideration. And that means that needlessly harming or killing it would be morally wrong. And, and that's where I, you know, I, I, the, I find it deeply frustrating when careful ethical moral thinkers particularly from a humanist or an atheist tradition um form conclusions that to me really just seem self-serving um mm -hmm. so so in and it's almost as though animal ethics is like kryptonite to these otherwise very careful you know eth and logical ethical th thinkers so um you know they're committed to evidence and reason and they're committed to some degree of universal compassion but then we'll make excuses for carving out um, certain species or even all non-human species to allow them to continue doing you know what they've always done they to my mind they seem as trapped by you know tradition uh, as the religious people they criticize um, and as they've turned away from tradition and followed evidence and reason towards their atheism and their humanism it seems deeply frustrating to me that they're not able to follow evidence and reason and compassion to you know, recognize that whatever the cognitive capabilities of non-human animals, they suffer, right? And, and anyone who has a companional animal or, you know, or a pet or has ever spent any time with any farmed animals knows that. I mean, Sean Carroll is another, um, you know, and, and they will recognize that non-human animals are capable of suffering, but then say it doesn't matter because they don't have, you know, a sense of a future life or higher cognitive capabilities or, um, yeah, so I find that deeply frustrating. Uh, I mean, it's, I find it frustrating for, you know, anybody on the street I meet that hasn't thought these things through, even though I didn't for a long while. <laughs> um, but for someone who is, um, you know, a careful, ethical, rational, naturalistic thinker to then have this sort of kryptonite when it comes to animal ethics, I find yeah, deeply frustrating. Uh, in terms of like the, the graded sentience, do you think that something like Tononi's sense of phi is uh, like a reasonable approach to that or I mean I think that you know like Scott Aronson has sort of shut down IIT but uh, I don't know if you have any feelings on that type of thing yeah I, I mean I, I need to read the papers and go deeper into it my sense is I, th I think I think they're on to I think they're onto something um, and there there is some sort of correlation between you know a richness of integration of information processing and sentience and consciousness um, but I'm not sure the relationship works both ways so so um, one of you know there's a, one of the people who's joined our sentientism facebook group is a fascinating philosopher called eric schwitzgabel and he's written some beautiful papers one about um you know what is it like if anything to be a garden snail which is sort of uh, echoes the famous nagel paper about what is it like to be a bat but he's also written another paper about is the united states conscious 
Mm. Um, and the argument is, um, and he doesn't have a strong view either way, but he's at least framing the view to say that if consciousness and sentience really are just a class of information processing, why, why do they have to be part of an integrated biological unit? You, couldn't you have some sort of wider system of interacting parts that share, you know, processes information that could, could be conscious? Um, and, um, you know, I love the idea. I think, but, but just, just having rich, complex information processing isn't enough to qualify for sentience or consciousness. I think it's a particular type of information processing that's likely to only have come about either because, you know, it evolved because it was somewhat functionally useful um, to have this, you know, as I said before, a sort of model of the self in the environment um, and, and that subjective awareness sort of came as part of the package. Um, or maybe in the future, because we've explicitly designed it in, uh, once we understand enough about consciousness and sentience to make it happen. I don't think it's likely to come about just because there's a rich integration of information processing. It needs some other driver, functional driver, to uh, lead to sentience and consciousness, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think they're onto something there, but I'm not sure it needs more than just the level of integration. Yeah, I was very impressed when I first came across uh, Tononi and uh, Christoph Koch's work on that. But uh, I mean, there's a lot to dive into there. And uh, I'm yeah. curious uh, with like, you know, consciousness type stuff, is there any sort of model of consciousness that you uh, put particularly a high credence on? Um, not, not particularly. I mean, my, beyond what I've laid out and that I do think it is just, um, you know, a, a, a class of information processing. So mm -hmm. the, the school of thought it probably closely at closest aligns to is, is the sort of illusionist view. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't really like the term illusionism because it implies that illusionists are saying consciousness is an illusion, but we know it's not because we're experiencing it. And I think what illusionism is really saying is, it's not saying consciousness isn't real or consciousness is illusory. It's saying there is matter, energy, and information processing and nothing else so if you think there's something else apart from that that is consciousness that's the illusion but what i'm saying is consciousness is and sentience are very real and they are classes of information processing which are represented in you know energy and data sorry energy and matter interacting in very complex rich ways so it's yeah it's a, it's a very sort of materialist uh, naturalistic information processing view of consciousness and sentience and that's essentially like the like that's like being an eliminativist or like a sort of dennett it from bit type thing is that the same thing yeah yeah similar to you know dennett, dennett stance although I, had, I differ with him on you know on on the free will and the compatibilism side of it but yeah it's it's just a you know a rich complex class of information processing gotcha yeah. well um as we uh wind up here i i've sort of been wrestling with this uh question myself uh you know because uh, a little bit about me i'm a composer guitarist like improviser type that you know i do artistic work but i'm very interested in uh these sort of altruistic fields and you know seeing like the effective altruism movement and how it's essentially like people who are able to just throw a lot of money at these problems uh to make a big concrete dent yeah. uh and like negative utilitarianism is something i generally resonate with but uh you know, in that view, I think that bringing beauty and uh, vibrance into the world has sort of lower moral urgency than bringing or like reducing suffering or something like that. And um, as somebody who's like sort of dedicated his life to aesthetic uh, 
things. I'm just wondering what you think the role of like the artist is in this, uh, other than sort of being something that's like, I'm going to put song lyrics that, you know, talk about sentientism or something like that. Like, how does an artist uh, most usefully contribute to the sentientist movement? Well, one is I think, I think um, art and music and, and culture are deeply important. I mean, they're ways of directly impacting the quality of sentient experience from moment to moment um, that bring enormous richness and value to people. Um, so I wouldn't underplay that. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd agree. I think there is an asymmetry between, you know, the importance of reducing suffering versus enhancing flourishing, if you like, but that doesn't mean enhancing flourishing isn't, you know, deeply, deeply important and valuable. Um, it's also, you know, the naturalistic side of sentientism. Some people think that's quite cold and hard and emotionless and scientific, and it's just about facts and reason and putting everything in a spreadsheet. Um, and one, that, that's not the case, right? There's enormous awe and wonder and, um, you know, mystery um, in, in provisionally trying to understand the world um, and, a, and a sense of connectedness that is very physically real. So, um, so I don't think it needs to come across as a sort of cold, scientific uh, approach either. Um, but to answer your question about how art and music and culture can help, um, I'm a big fan of the effective altruism movement because in a way it's, it's sort of trying to put into practice what sentientism is talking about, saying we need a wide moral circle that includes all, all sentient beings and we should use evidence and reason to think about how to, you know, make the world a better place for all of those sentient beings as much as we can. Um, I mean, there are, you know, religious effective altruists and supernatural effective altruists as well, but most, most people in the effective altruism movement, you know, do take animal ethics seriously and have a naturalistic stance as well. So I think many of them are sentientists. Um, but the cause prioritization within effective altruism, you know, scope, tractability and so on, you know, and neglect, I think it's really important, but there's also an enormous amount of uncertainty about, um, you know, what are the best things to do? And that's part of my motivation behind trying to develop and popularize sentientism, because even if you're in a situation where, you know, you have enormous moral uncertainty, and, you know, and I think Will McCaskill's written a great piece on that recently. And even if you're really uncertain about um, what the right things to do are, how to progress, what the right evidence is that supports your argument, which causes to drive, um, even in a situation where there's enormous uncertainty about those things, there's something reassuring about improving, I guess, human values. Uh, because while it's less direct as, a, as an impact, um, you can, I think, be pretty confident that the results will be positive rather than negative. Because if we have a moral circle that includes all suffering beings and we use evidence and reason, we're going to be in a better position to take every single decision, whether that's a personal individual decision, an institutional decision, a policy decision. Um, so one, I think it's a safer, you know, upgrading those values is quite a safe thing to try and do if you're uncertain. Uh, but it also has can have very, very pervasive positive effects because if someone's values really do shift towards that naturalistic, sentiocentric, sentientist stance, uh, arguably that improves every decision they take from now on at every level. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, so, and I think you know, art, and music, and culture can play a really important role in that uh, in that value shift story because it can help people emotionally connect with the importance of, of in assessing our own values, improving them and, um, and developing them. So I think there's a, 
there's maybe a more obvious role for art and music and science art and music and culture in helping shift human values than there is in some of the more specific campaigns and mm -hmm. uh, now what about like a more uh, like abstract sort of artistic stuff uh where like there isn't you know like you aren't really handing off the idea of sentientism it's just like i'm making bleeps and blops and uh you know with pitches and frequencies and stuff uh uh, I mean, other than just sort of adding some sort of intellectual uh, stimulation or like aesthetic stimulation, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I'm asking, but <laughs> no. But I, but I mean, personally, I get enormous pleasure from bleeps and blobs and uh, nice fat baselines. So, so you know that that that's that's important. It's a valuable contribution, right, in its own right. Um, but but also, and this is a challenge, common challenge with the ineffective altruism movement is, it's you've got to look after yourself right and 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 if you don't look after yourself and what's important to you and what you enjoy you know one your quality of your own life would degrade but also you're probably less well positioned to help others so so there is this challenge around this sort of demanding this view of ethics that you know is there a way of recognizing the catastrophic suffering in the universe uh and and a moral imperative to do something about that without letting that crush you to a point where you you know you give up and curl into a shell so i think you know one you know the, your bleeps and bloops give direct pleasure to anyone who hears them um and also it's a part of you know your your you have a responsibility to look after your the quality of your own sentient experience as well so as you enjoy creating that stuff you should revel in it so <laughs> fair enough yeah i mean it's a marathon not a race as they say yeah um, yeah a sort of a fun question that I'll, I guess, end on is if you were to like sort of have a, uh, a set of music people or artists or whatever to do like a sentient fest, who would you choose? Oh, well, who would be good spokespeople? That's tough. Um, oh, man. There are already some, right? So, so one of the things on the website is the website you've, you've seen sentientism.info where you've, you've kindly added yourself to the wall as well, which is wonderful because it's sort of helping to normalize the idea and, uh, and have people sign up. But there's another page there of suspected sentientists. And these are people who are like celebrities or you know, well-known people who I think think this way already, right? So they're already humanistic or atheistic or you know, at least agnostic in their naturalism, in their worldview. You know, they don't have supernatural views and they're not religious, uh, but they're also clearly very serious about their animal ethics, normally because they're vegan. Um, now, so far, the musicians on there are not necessarily to my personal taste, but, mm -hmm. you know, so Brian Adams is on the list as an example. Um, so I think we'd have to have him there because he, you know, he's already, I think, in line with sentientism. Um, but one of the things I'd love to do would be to take some of the um, uh, artists who have quite a strong religious ethos and convert them to being, you know, naturalistic atheists who, you know, are then serious about their animal ethics as well. So um, maybe there's some, you know, we, we want to convert. I, I'm up for it. Um, cool. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, so beyond Brian Adams, like, uh, can you think of anybody else that's aligned within the movement? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, in terms of... I'm not sure in the music world. It's, the music world seems interesting because there's there's quite a lot of religiosity in um, you know behind some of the people I like. So in the you know in the modern classical world, like uh, Arvo Pet, for example, I think writes beautiful music, um, but is you know has a deep religious ethos behind everything he does. Um, you know I love a lot of hip hop and hip hop music as well, but there's a, quite a strong religiosity amongst 
um, you know, some of those artists I, I really respect. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's more patchy, interestingly. The, I think, if anything, the animal ethics thing and, and veganism seems to get more traction with, you know, many of the, you know, really well-known artists. Uh, but there's, a, there's more of a hesitancy about, uh, you know, the naturalist side of that. And maybe there's something in the artistic temperament that's sort of drawn to the mystical and the spiritual and the supernatural in a, in a way. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, in like just looking around various like rationalist websites and like blogs and stuff, if you search for art, you might find something about like some sort of anime. But uh, if you search for music, you won't find anything. Like there's nothing yeah. about music on La Strong, <laughs> for instance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and do you know, I mean, another um, one art, have you heard of Barker? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, so he's. I mean, he's. You're probably aware, right? But he's in, influenced directly by David Pierce's work, and you know, mm -hmm. I think both both of them are sentientists as well. So we should we should probably put him him and you headlining. True, that sounds great. And, yeah. and, and Brian Adams can be your support act. Maybe. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that sounds. Uh, that will be the day. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Me and Barker headlining over Brian Adams. Yeah, um, that sounds great. <laughs> Cool. Um, I buy a ticket. Do you want to tell people where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm um, on Twitter at Jamie Woodhouse, but also at Sentientism. It's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, it is what it is. The main website is at sentientism.info. Um, and there you'll find John on the wall and, you know, our suspected celebrity sentientists and a bunch of different podcasts and videos and uh, articles I've written. Um, but probably most importantly is we're trying to build some online uh, global communities around the idea as well they're all open to anyone they're open to anyone who's interested in the idea you don't have to be you know a sentientist uh, so we have religious people in there we have you know people of all different types of views um, but if you search for sentientism on any of the usual forums the big main one is on facebook um, where we have people from I think, over 90 countries now it's a fascinating mix of activists and um, academics and policy people and writers but mostly just interested uh, lay people like me from absolutely every continent and over 90 countries. Um, but we've got a Discord server and a Telegram and a LinkedIn group and a bunch of others as well. Um, people are very welcome to come and uh, come and visit. But yeah, probably the the, the core is sentientism.info, at sentientism on Twitter, and then look for that sentientism group on Facebook and you're all welcome. And I'd love to hear feedback about the ideas because while they're, you know, the basics are very simple, right? Evidence, reason, and compassion. There's some potentially quite, uh, challenging contentious implications um, and when you look through what it means for you know religious or supernatural worldviews um, and the practices that fro flow from that and some of the warped ethics that flow from those worldviews um, as well as the you know the animal ethics stuff that we've talked about today uh, there's some pretty serious implications of that worldview that you know I'd love to get people's feedback on and continue the conversation. Awesome cool well um, I'll also link that below and all that. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for talking to me, Jamie. This is fun. That's great. A real pleasure. Really good to meet you on the, on the screen. Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, um, we'll be in contact, I'm sure. Thanks, John. Take care, mate. You too. Bye.